The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Ugaretz. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 20. After dinner we stayed to see a curious half-superstitious scene acted by the Malay women. A large wooden spoon dressed in garments, and which had been carried to the grave of a dead man, they pretend becomes inspired at the full of the moon, and will dance and jump about. After the proper preparations the spoon, held by two women, became convulsed, and danced in good time to the song of the surrounding children and women. It was a most foolish spectacle, but Mr. Leask maintained that many of the Malays believed in its spiritual movements. The dance did not commence until the moon had risen, and it was well worth remaining to behold her bright orb so quietly shining through the long arms of the coconut trees as they waved in the evening breeze. These scenes of the tropics are in themselves so delicious that they almost equal those dearer ones at home, to which we are bound by each best feeling of the mind. The next day I enjoyed myself in examining the very interesting, yet simple, structure and origin of these islands. The water being unusually smooth, I wandered over the outer flat of dead rock as far as the living mounds of coral, on which the swell of the open sea breaks. In some of the gullies and hollows there were beautiful green and other colored fishes, and the forms and tints of many of the zoophytes were admirable. It is excusable to grow enthusiastic over the infinite numbers of organic beings with which the sea of the tropics, so prodigal of life, teems. Yet I must confess I think those naturalists who have described, in well-known words, the submarine grottoes decked with a thousand beauties, have indulged in rather exuberant language. April 6th. I accompanied Captain Fitzroy to an island at the head of the lagoon. The channel was exceedingly intricate, winding through fields of delicately branched corals. We saw several turtle, and two boats were then employed in catching them. The water was so clear and shallow that although at first a turtle quickly dives out of sight, yet in a canoe or boat under sail, the pursuers, after no very long chase, come up to it. A man standing ready in the bow at this moment dashes through the water upon the turtle's back. Then, clinging with both hands by the shell of its neck, he is carried away till the animal becomes exhausted and is secured. It was quite an interesting chase to see the two boats thus doubling about, and the men dashing head foremost into the water trying to seize their prey. Captain Moresby informs me that in the Chagos archipelago, in the same ocean, the natives, by a horrible process, take the shell from the back of the living turtle. It is covered with burning charcoal, which causes the outer shell to curl upwards. It is then forced off with a knife, and before it becomes cold, flattened between boards. After this barbarous process, the animal is suffered to regain its native element, where, after a certain time, a new shell is formed. It is, however, too thin to be of any service, and the animal always appears languishing and sickly. When we arrived at the head of the lagoon, we crossed a narrow islet, and found a great surf breaking on the windward coast. I can hardly explain the reason, but there is to my mind much grandeur in the view of the outer shores of these lagoon islands. There is a simplicity in the barrier-like beach, the margin of green bushes and tall coconuts, the solid flat of dead coral rock, strewed here and there with great loose fragments, and the line of furious breakers all rounding away towards either hand. The ocean throwing its waters over the broad reef appears an invincible, all-powerful enemy, 
yet we see it resisted and even conquered by means which at first seem most weak and inefficient. It is not that the ocean spares the rock of coral, the great fragments scattered over the reef and heaped on the beach whence the tall coconut springs plainly bespeak the unrelenting power of the waves. Nor are any periods of repose granted, the long swell caused by the gentle but steady action of the trade wind, always blowing in one direction over a wide area, causes breakers almost equaling in force those during a gale of wind in the temperate regions, and which never cease to rage. It is impossible to behold these waves without feeling a conviction that an island, though built of the hardest rock, let it be porphyry, granite, or quartz, would ultimately yield and be demolished by such an irresistible power. Yet these low, insignificant coral islets stand, and are victorious, for here another power, as an antagonist, takes part in the contest. The organic forces separate the atoms of carbonate of lime one by one from the foaming breakers, and unite them into a symmetrical structure. Let the hurricane tear up its thousand huge fragments, yet what will that tell against the accumulated labor of myriads of architects that work night and day, month after month? Thus do we see the soft and gelatinous body of a polypus, through the agency of the vital laws, conquering the great mechanical power of the waves of an ocean, which neither the art of man nor the inanimate works of nature could successfully resist. We did not return on board till late in the evening, for we stayed a long time in the lagoon, examining the fields of coral and the gigantic shells of the chama, into which, if a man were to put his hand, he would not, as long as the animal lived, be able to withdraw it. Near the head of the lagoon I was much surprised to find a wide area, considerably more than a mile square, covered with a forest of delicately branching corals, which, though standing upright, were all dead and rotten. At first I was quite at a loss to understand the cause. Afterwards it occurred to me that it was owing to the following rather curious combination of circumstances. It should, however, first be stated that corals are not able to survive even a short exposure in the air to the sun's rays, so that their upward limit of growth is determined by that of lowest water at spring tides. It appears, from some old charts, that the Long Island to windward was formerly separated by wide channels into separate islets. This fact is likewise indicated by the trees being younger on these portions. Under the former condition of the reef, a strong breeze, by throwing more water over the barrier, would tend to raise the level of the lagoon. Now it acts in a directly contrary manner, for the water within the lagoon not only is not increased by currents from the outside, but is itself blown outwards by the force of the wind. Hence it is observed that the tide near the head of the lagoon does not rise so high during a strong breeze as it does when it is calm. This difference of level, although no doubt very small, has, I believe, caused the death of those coral groves, which, under the former and more open condition of the outer reef, has attained the utmost limit of upward growth. A few miles north of Keeling there is another small atoll, the lagoon of which is nearly filled up with coral mud. Captain Ross found embedded in the conglomerate on the outer coast a well-rounded fragment of greenstone, rather larger than a man's head. He and the men with him were so much surprised at this that they brought it away and preserved it as a curiosity. The occurrence of this one stone where every other particle of matter is calcareous certainly is very puzzling. The island has scarcely ever been visited, nor is it probable that a ship had been wrecked there. 
From the absence of any better explanation, I came to the conclusion that it must have come entangled in the roots of some large tree. When, however, I considered the great distance from the nearest land, the combination of chances against a stone thus being entangled, the tree washed into the sea, floated so far, then landed safely, and the stone finally so embedded as to allow of its discovery, I was almost afraid of imagining a means of transport, apparently so improbable. It was therefore with great interest that I found Chamiso, the justly distinguished naturalist who accompanied Kotzebue, stating that the inhabitants of the Radak archipelago, a group of lagoon islands in the midst of the Pacific, obtain stones for sharpening their instruments by searching the roots of trees which are cast upon the beach. It will be evident that this must have happened several times, since laws have been established that such stones belong to the chief, and a punishment is inflicted on anyone who attempts to steal them. When the isolated position of these small islands in the midst of a vast ocean, their great distance from any land, excepting that of coral formation, attested by the value which the inhabitants, who are such bold navigators, attach to a stone of any kind, footnote 7, some natives carried by Kotzebue to Kamchatka collected stones to take back to their country. And the slowness of the currents of the open sea are all considered the occurrence of pebbles thus transported does appear wonderful. Stones may often be thus carried, and if the island on which they are stranded is constructed of any other substance besides coral, they would scarcely attract attention, and their origin, at least, would never be guessed. Moreover, this agency may long escape discovery from the probability of trees, especially those loaded with stones, floating beneath the surface. In the channels of Tierra del Fuego, Large quantities of drift timber are cast upon the beach, yet it is extremely rare to meet a tree swimming on the water. These facts may possibly throw light on single stones, whether angular or rounded, occasionally found embedded in fine sedimentary masses. During another day, I visited West Islet, on which the vegetation was perhaps more luxuriant than on any other. The coconut trees generally grow separate, but here the young ones flourished beneath their tall parents and formed with their long and curved fronds the most shady arbors. Those alone who have tried it know how delicious it is to be seated in such shade and drink the cool, pleasant fluid of the coconut. In this island there is a large bay-like space composed of the finest white sand. It is quite level and is only covered by the tide at high water. From this large bay smaller creeks penetrate the surrounding woods. To see a field of glittering white sand representing water, with the coconut trees extending their tall and waving trunks around the margin, formed a singular and very pretty view. I have before alluded to a crab which lives on the coconuts. It is very common on all parts of the dry land and grows to a monstrous size. It is closely allied to, or identical with, the Birgos latro. The front pair of legs terminate in very strong and heavy pincers and the last pair are fitted with others weaker and much narrower. It would at first be thought quite impossible for a crab to open a strong coconut covered with the husk, but Mr. Leask assures me that he has repeatedly seen this effected. The crab begins by tearing the husk, fiber by fiber, and always from that end under which the three eye-holes are situated. When this is completed, the crab commences hammering with its heavy claws on one of the eye-holes till an opening is made. Then, turning round its body by the aid of its posterior and narrow pair of pincers, it extracts the white albuminous substance. I think this is as curious a case of instinct as ever I heard of, 
and likewise of adaptation and structure between two objects apparently so remote from each other in the scheme of nature as a crab and a coconut tree. The Birgos is diurnal in its habits, but every night it is said to pay a visit to the sea, no doubt for the purpose of moistening its branchiae. The young are likewise hatched, and live for some time on the coast. These crabs inhabit deep burrows, which they hollow out beneath the roots of trees, and where they accumulate surprising quantities of the picked fibers of the coconut husk on which they rest as on a bed. The Malays sometimes take advantage of this and collect the fibrous mass to use as junk. These crabs are very good to eat. Moreover, under the tail of the larger ones there is a mass of fat which, when melted, sometimes yields as much as a quart bottle full of limpid oil. It has been stated by some authors that the beer ghost crawls up the coconut trees for the purpose of stealing the nuts. I very much doubt the probability of this, but with the pandanus, footnote 8, see Proceedings of Zoological Society, 1832, page 17, the task would be very much easier. I was told by Mr. Leask that on these islands the beer ghost lives only on the nuts which have fallen to the ground. Captain Moresby informs me that this crab inhabits the Chagos and Seychelles groups, but not the neighboring Maldiva archipelago. It formerly abounded at Mauritius, but only a few small ones are now found there. In the Pacific, this species, or one with closely allied habits, is said to inhabit a single coral island north of the society group. Footnote 9, Tyreman and Bennett, Voyages, etc., Volume 2, page 33. To show the wonderful strength of the front pair of pincers, I may mention that Captain Moresby confined one in a strong tin box which had held biscuits, the lid being secured with wire, but the crab turned down the edges and escaped. In turning down the edges, it actually punched many small holes quite through the tin. I was a good deal surprised by finding two species of coral of the genus Millipora, M. complanata and Alcicornis, possessed the power of stinging. The stony branches or plates, when taken fresh from the water, have a harsh feel, and are not slimy, although possessing a strong and disagreeable smell. The stinging property seems to vary in different specimens. When a piece was pressed or rubbed on the tender skin of the face or arm, a pricking sensation was usually caused, which came on after the interval of a second, and lasted only for a few minutes. One day, however, by merely touching my face with one of the branches, pain was instantaneously caused. It increased as usual after a few seconds, and remained sharp for some minutes, was perceptible for half an hour afterwards. The sensation was as bad as that from a nettle, but more like that caused by the Physalia, or Portuguese man-of-war. Little red spots were produced on the tender skin of the arm, which appeared as if they would have formed watery pustules, but did not. M. Coy mentions this case of the Millipora, and I have heard of stinging corals in the West Indies. Many marine animals seem to have this power of stinging. Besides the Portuguese man-of-war, many jellyfish and the aplysia, or sea-slug, of the Capteverde Islands. It is stated in the voyage of the Astrolabe that an actinia, or sea-anemone, as well as a flexible coralline allied to sertularia, both possess this means of offense or defense. In the East Indian Sea, a stinging seaweed is said to be found. Two species of fish of the genus Scarus, which are common here, exclusively feed on coral. 
Both are colored of a splendid bluish green, one living invariably in the lagoon and the other amongst the outer breakers. Mr. Leask assured us that he had repeatedly seen whole shoals grazing with their strong bony jaws on the tops of the coral branches. I opened the intestines of several and found them distended with yellow calcareous sandy mud. The slimy, disgusting holothuriae, allied to our starfish, which the Chinese gourmands are so fond of, also feed largely, as I am informed by Dr. Allen, on corals, and the bony apparatus within their bodies seems well adapted for this end. These holothuriae, the fish, the numerous burrowing shells, and neuratus worms, which perforate every block of dead coral, must be very efficient agents in producing the fine white mud which lies at the bottom and on the shores of the lagoon. A portion, however, of this mud, which when wet resembled pounded chalk, was found by Professor Ehrenberg to be partly composed of siliceous shielded infusoria. April 12th. In the morning we stood out of the lagoon on our passage to the Isle of France. I am glad we have visited these islands. Such formations surely rank high amongst the wonderful objects of this world. Captain Fitzroy found no bottom with a line 7,200 feet in length, at the distance of only 2,200 yards from the shore. Hence this island forms a lofty submarine mountain, with sides steeper even than those of the most abrupt volcanic cone. The saucer-shaped summit is nearly ten miles across, and every single atom, from the least particle to the largest fragment of rock in this great pile, which, however, is small compared with very many other lagoon islands, bears the stamp of having been subjected to organic arrangement. Footnote 10. I exclude, of course, some soil which has been imported here in vessels from Malacca and Java, and likewise some small fragments of pumice drifted here by the waves. The one block of greenstone, moreover, on the northern island, must be accepted. We feel surprise when travelers tell us of the vast dimensions of the pyramids and other great ruins, but how utterly insignificant are the greatest of these when compared to these mountains of stone accumulated by the agency of various minute and tender animals. This is a wonder which does not at first strike the eye of the body, but after reflection, the eye of reason. I will now give a very brief account of the three great classes of coral reefs, namely atolls, barrier, and fringing reefs, and will explain my views on their formation. Footnote 11. These were first read before the Geological Society in May 1837, and have since been developed in a separate volume on the structure and distribution of coral reefs. Almost every voyager who has crossed the Pacific has expressed his unbounded astonishment at the Lagoon Islands, or, as I shall for the future call them by their Indian name of Atolls, and has attempted some explanation. Even as long ago as the year 1605, Pierard de Laval well exclaimed, C'est une merveille de voir chacun de ces atolons, environ de un grand banc de pierre tout autour, ni ayant point d'artifice humain. The accompanying sketch of Whitsunday Island in the Pacific, copied from Captain Beachy's admirable voyage, gives but a faint idea of the singular aspect of an atoll. It is one of the smallest size and has its narrow islets united together in a ring. The immensity of the ocean, the fury of the breakers contrasted with the lowness of the land and the smoothness of the bright green water within the lagoon, can hardly be imagined without having been seen. 
The earlier voyagers fancied that the coral-building animals instinctively built up their great circles to afford themselves protection in the inner parts. But so far is this from the truth that those massive kinds to whose growth on the exposed outer shores the very existence of the reef depends cannot live within the lagoon, where other delicately branching kinds flourish. Moreover, on this view, many species of distinct genera and families are supposed to combine for one end, and of such a combination not a single instance can be found in the whole of nature. The theory that has been most generally received is that the atolls are based on submarine craters, but when we consider the form and size of some, the number, proximity, and relative positions of others, this idea loses its plausible character. Thus, Suadiva Atoll is 44 geographical miles in diameter in one line, by 34 miles in another line. Rimsky is 54 by 20 miles across, and it has a strangely sinuous margin. Bow Atoll is 30 miles long, and on an average only 6 in width. Menchikov Atoll consists of three atolls, united or tied together. This theory, moreover, is totally inapplicable to the northern Maldiva Atolls in the Indian Ocean one of which is 88 miles in length, and between 10 and 20 in breadth. For they are not bounded like ordinary atolls by narrow reefs, but by a vast number of separate little atolls, other little atolls rising out of the great central lagoon-like spaces. A third and better theory was advanced by Chamiso, who thought that from the corals growing more vigorously were exposed to the open sea, as undoubtedly is the case, the outer edges would grow up from the general foundation before any other part, and that this would account for the ring or cup-shaped structure. But we shall immediately see that in this, as well as in the crater theory, a most important consideration has been overlooked, namely, on what have the reef-building corals, which cannot live at a great depth, based their massive structures.' 